0: Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On The Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On The Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about current? You're going to like this, guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking.
1: Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank
0: anymore? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash
1: OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group member FDIC and Cross River Bank member FDIC
0: I'm Dan Nathan I'm here with Packy McCormick of Not Boring this is OK Computer Podcast how you doing Packy I'm doing well man how are you I'm doing well. You're back up from Miami. You did your little winter stint, I guess you would say, down there. How'd that go? Was it still crypto central down there?
2: It might have been crypto central. I feel like such a loser hermit because I just went down to Miami, had nicer weather outside my window, and stayed inside and wrote the whole time pretty much.
0: You know what's also interesting? And I know you were in traditional markets before you got into Web3. The book that everyone tells you to read when you start in the markets they've probably been telling you to read for like 80 years. was reminiscence of a stock operator. Did you read that? Yeah, I did. An Amazing book. But I always found it really fascinating. I think it really starts out with the main character as the boy plunger. You're kind of like the boy plunger of crypto. Is that fair to say or no? <laughs> Maybe? No. But he used to go down in the winters to Florida. And you remember, he would have his trading positions. He was trading a lot of commodities back then, basically 100 years ago. And he basically would basically lose touch of his positions the two weeks it took him on the train to get down to Florida.
2: All I remember is the very long paper ticker. I think that is maybe like the only thing I remember from that book, but.
0: You should reread that book. It's about manias. It's about psychology. It's behavioral finance. And I think you'd find a lot of things very applicable to crypto. Maybe you could write that book. Oh, I like that. The bubble is back, baby. We're going to talk about that a little bit. We have Stuart Sop on. He's going to be joining you and me, CEO, co-founder of Current, plus his co-founder Trevor Marshall, who is the CTO. We're going to talk a bit. Stuart had a great tweet a couple of weeks ago as a former FX trader in him who was saying, I think the market in Bitcoin is 30 at 60. And I just think that's funny because you could drive a truck through that. So for you to say we're back at 42, you might get back to that midpoint and you may spend months and months banging around here a little bit.
2: We'll talk about it with them. I love banging around down here. I actually am mad. I aped in a little bit last week into some more ETH and I was about to do it again. And then I woke up this morning and it was over 3,000. I still like it here, but SAS bears, crypto bears. I want to see all the bears get their faces ripped off right now.
0: It's not the sort of market, though, where people can be shorting it. The NASDAQ was down 23% two weeks ago from its all-time highs, and it's rallied 12%, 13% or so. And so that's a market where if you're listening to a guy like me on Fast Money who's bearish on this or whatever, and you're that guy on Twitter, like, I hope it rips your face off. There's not really too many ways to rip short's faces off in crypto. It's just the talking heads who hate it and having them look silly.
2: Yeah, there's, I guess, not the same ability to get short. I guess there's implied shortness of not being long when it outperforms other things. I just don't like Twitter as much in a bear market or whatever that was that we just had. Cause like all the worst people on Twitter are winning when that happens. And I just don't like that environment. So that's more what I mean. I just want the fun mood to come back here.
0: You're generally a big optimist as it relates to this. All right, what are a couple of things real quickly on ETH you aped into more and you've been very consistent on OK Computer over the last few months or so that when you get down to levels that we've just recently seen, low 2000s, I know you've even mentioned that if you were 1750, which was double bottom low last year, you're going all in. But it seems like when we see 2200, 2300, you're getting it. What are some of the catalysts other than just your long term view of Ethereum as a layer one and all the interesting things? that you're focused on. Are there any near-term catalysts and is it the move towards proof of stake?
2: So that looks like it's actually happening and will actually happen sometime over the summer, the merge. The interesting thing there is that a significant portion of ETH between either DeFi or preparing to stake for ETH2 through Lido Finance, by setting up your own node, whatever, a ton of ETH is being staked, which means it's locked up. People are kind of predicting that of the 118 million ETH supply, Maybe 40 to 50 million will be freely tradable and most will be staked. Staking is now earning 4%, and this is on an asset like Ethereum, which is as blue chip as it gets in the space. And apparently after the merge, we'll at least briefly bump up to a 10 or 15% yield for a little bit there, which I think will just attract more ETH into the stake. And then depending on volume, proof of stake should lower fees. Depending on volume, you could actually get deflationary post-merge, which I think is super, super bullish. And all these things are happening when we're 50% down from all time highs. It just feels like the sentiment's building back up. The guys over at the Bankless podcast are doing a great job, I think, of creating hype around the merge and what that might mean. But I think if you like ETH long term and you think that the merge is going to go through successfully, this feels like a last chance in this dip to get in.
0: Well, just to play devil's advocate, this was the same narrative at this time last year, almost exactly the same narrative. And if you look at where ETH was, it was trading at very similar levels. And that move to proof of stake was supposed to happen. Some point people were thinking last summer. So I just want to point that out.
2: Totally. I think when I wrote about ETH last summer, I wrote that that was coming soon or soonish. Also wrote, and I think the joke has been that this merge has just been coming next quarter for the past five years feels a little more real right now. And I think that all of that baggage is probably why it hasn't ripped back up to levels that would suggest that people have priced it in fully.
0: You just mentioned that on the Internet piece that you wrote last spring. It was really a long-term bull case for Ethereum. You hit on a bunch of that stuff. So we'll put that in the show notes. Check that out, people. And over the summer, you wrote Solana Summer. And I got to pivot to a blog post by prominent VC, Fred Wilson, that he posted on his blog, AVC, last week. I think it was March 14th or so, where he quoted you, Packy. And let me just say this. Let's take a step back here, okay? So I got to know you, I want to say, less than a year ago, primarily through your post posts on Not Boring, which were widely shared. Now you have over, what, 100,000 subscribers to that podcast. Obviously, a lot of very prominent folks too, like Fred Wilson. So you've been advising Chris Dixon at A16Z. You got Fred Wilson quoting you in his blog. You've been on CNBC's Fast Money with me. What's this all feel like for you, man? And we could focus on the last one, if that's most important.
2: You know this. Every day is a different day. Every negative thing, I think, still outweighs the positive. Like yesterday, I wrote about Ramp, which is a killer company. They make money based on interchange. They don't make money based on recurring revenue. When I tweeted out, I wrote recurring as opposed to annualized revenue. I made a mistake and there's no edit button. You got killed. I got crushed for it. Throughout the essay, I wrote, this is different than recurring revenue. This is annualized. This is their run rate. And then I messed up the tweet and I got killed. Because no one's reading it. They're just reading the headlines. They're just reading the tweet. I know. And still, those things just irk me. I think when I lose that is probably when the whole thing falls apart. But I would say day to day, it's a lot of that kind of stuff.
0: All right. So you are a very widely read blogger in Web3. And I thought it was interesting that Fred Wilson now is writing less. I think a couple times a week he used to write every day. And I think his stuff is obviously very widely followed. The transparency that he's demonstrated on this blog for almost decades now is pretty amazing. I first read about Helium on his blog. I bought one of those routers and I started mining Helium tokens. This was, I think, in late 2019. So it's a massive wealth of information and the transparency is amazing. So last week, and this was a, a thing that you and I have touched on, I guess it's a Twitter war. Who owns Web3? We spent a little time talking about it. Jack Dorsey and Mark Endres have been going back and forth. And in this post last week on March 14th that you recorded, and he says there's a lot of criticism of venture capital in Web3. Bitcoin did not have or need venture capital. Ethereum did not have need venture capital, so why would any Web3 project need venture capital? It's a good question. This is Fred speaking. He said, well-buried deep in a 66-page blog post on the Flow blockchain by Packy McCormick lies the answer. And so he said what Packy lays out, and he was talking about Flow in a section called Kitty down, and again, we will put this in the show notes, Packy describes the challenges that Dapper Labs team went through between late 2017 when CryptoKitties launched in the summer of 2020 when Top Shot launched. What Packy lays out is a series of notes that the venture capitalists, including yours truly, that's Fred, provided to Dapper during the last crypto winter that kept the project alive. As Packy says, in Dapper's case, VCs kept the company alive during the bear market and the company sold tokens to the public at the same price it sold them to VCs even though VCs invested first. And Fred says that latter bit is quite important. Talk to us why that's important and why you felt like focusing on that in that post.
2: It's super interesting because I think maybe there's a group of people who really care about that and there's a group of people who don't. When my brother was editing the piece a couple of times, he was like, you're like really going deep on the inside baseball VC stuff here. But I think it's important because, and particularly I wrote this in this mini bear market when it doesn't look super, super smart or greedy or whatever to have invested in a particular thing. It's almost a timestamp for the future. If Flow gets really big and these people make a ton of money off of having invested in Flow, it's a timestamp to say at no point in this journey was this an obvious investment. They actually removed a lot of tweets that I had in there just for length, but a bunch of people making fun of the CryptoKitties investment, then making fun of Dapper for building a Flow blockchain after they had just made CryptoKitties cartoons. Chris and Fred essentially coming back in each and every round and backing this company and getting shit for it. And then the investment works. And once it works, everyone's like greedy VCs taking all the coins. This is too centralized when the market was not supporting this. So that was kind of the point of this is that like in hindsight, when you've made a risky bet that look smart, then you're the villain all of a sudden. But throughout this process, there is no NBA top shots. There is probably no NFT movement to the extent that we've had it, not all these knock-on effects if they don't not worry about looking like idiots backing the CryptoKitties thing for a little while.
0: Yeah, the guy is prescient. And I have to make a confession here. I was on vacation last week. I have not read your flow report. I have read on the internet two or three times and Solana summer two or three times, but I have to block out five hours to read that one. Yeah, this one's particularly long. And I can't wait for it, but that's a good segue. So Fred last week on AVC, again, we'll put this in the show notes. He wrote a post called Keeping It Simple on March 20th. And I just want to read this quote because you are a new VC. You just launched Not Boring Capital here and you are all over the place in Web3 as a thought leader, but also as an investor. And Fred wrote, I like to keep things simple. And when I do, I am rewarded. Aha moments come around every so often, and you just need to let them grab you and take you to a fundamental investment. You don't need to do much due diligence on these. I did none on Twitter, on Coinbase, or Dapper. What I did do is use the products, get in the game, feel the power, and get conviction. That's keeping it simple. It doesn't always work, but we get more wrong than we get right. But when we get it right, things can happen. Talk to me about that mantra, and how are you thinking about that as you're deploying capital for Not Boring?
2: It's Brilliant. And I think maybe that strategy works for Fred Wilson for sure. When you're as good at this as he is, I think a lot of people are going to read it and be like, hell yeah, I don't need to do due diligence. Like I just believe in this thing and they're not Fred Wilson and they'll probably make some mistakes. Bringing it full circle, I actually bought Bitcoin for the first time because of the Coinbase article that Fred wrote and linked to in this piece. And it was really equally simple then. I sold it and that was a dumb decision. But the buy decision was Fred Wilson saying to do this thing, I'm going to do this thing and try it. And also Bank of America doesn't know this exists. So I don't have to worry about trading restrictions. As I look through my portfolio, the ones where I've tried to talk myself into it or diligence myself into doing something are investments that'll probably do fine, but that I'm not overly excited about. The ones where I just meet a founder and feel a product and understand that this is a thing that needs to happen and that that's the person that can pull it off. Those are the ones that I'm most excited about right now.
0: The one thing I would just say is that it's kind of interesting when you think about what did he just mention: Twitter, Coinbase, and Dapper. And if you think about it, that's probably over a 15-year period. And it also takes money to make money. I mean, that's the thing I think you're going to learn in VC. You're going to do things differently in Fund 1 that you do in Fund 2 and Fund 3. You're going to iterate on some of the things that worked. You're going to learn lessons on the things that didn't. I am not a VC. I do not deploy capital in private markets. This is probably why you guys should all be running for the hills. I just made a couple private market investments. So watch out, people. But I'll just say this. The transparency is absolutely amazing watching what he's doing is probably a great way to do it. And following people like you who are doing these deep dives make a whole heck of a lot of sense. All right, listen, we got to wrap this segment up. But when we come back, we are going to have the co-founders of Current, CEO Stuart Sop, and CTO Trevor Marshall. So stick around. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's Current. Dot com slash OK.
1: Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts, with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros.
0: Stuart Stopp is the CEO and founder of Current, a leading U.S. financial technology platform. He spent over 15 years as a macro trader in FX at some of the world's largest banks, including Morgan Stanley, where he met Trevor Marshall, who is now Current's chief technology officer and his co-founder. They left Morgan Stanley together in 2014 and began building the infrastructure for what would become Current. Dan Nathan, Packy McCormick, we are joined by a previous guest of OK Computer, the CEO and founder of Current, Stuart Sop, And I've just been told this, people, so newsflash here. This is the first time ever his co-founder, Trevor Marshall, the CTO of Current, that you guys have been in a room together doing an interview?
3: First time in a room together,
0: actually. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys took that remote work thing very seriously? First time in a podcast or a TV, and anything. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Stuart and I sat down. It was in early February, and we had a great one on one. And that Amanda's going to post that in the show notes here. And we talked about the origin story of Current and how you guys met, Trevor, and your influence on a surly FX trader at Morgan Stanley named Stuart Sop. But I really wanted Packy to join this crew here because there was some stuff that we talked about that I think were more on the level as far as Packy and the stuff that he's really interested about crypto and Web3. And really, I think your impetus for going into the financial services in general, Trevor. And so, Stuart, you told us a little bit. He was your intern at Morgan Stanley on the FX desk, and he came to you, and he wanted to trade Bitcoin, and you're like, what the hell is Bitcoin? And then he gave you this white paper, and you read it, and you didn't understand a lot of it, but you understood the tenets of it, right? The technicals of it, you didn't really. And then you caught the bug. And so I'd love Trevor to hear a little bit about how that went down. And then, Packy, I don't know if you and I have ever talked about, what's your crypto origin story? In our conversation we just had, you said, yeah, you read Fred Wilson's post on his investment in Coinbase, and that's the thing. That got you to it. So I'm just curious if we can put some of this together. So Trevor, tell us about that time. Did you actually print it out and you had the white paper and
3: you just sent Stuart? No, we, we went full full digital, I believe. Yeah. I don't know. They had a lot of printers at Morgan Stanley, though, so I could have. Yeah, and they had shredders, too, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> we don't work there anymore. In college, I was, I was here in New York in 2011, 2012, studying math and computer science. Kind of the right place, right time. Because that was when a lot of the early Bitcoin meetups were getting started. The first Bitcoin I bought was on local Bitcoins, where you would find someone else who could sell it to you, meet up in person, hand that person cash, and have a transaction created. Sound like early eBay. Yeah, IRL for a digital product. Tell them about the barbecue you brought me to. I was the only guy in a suit. Wait, you have a suit? I used to, and I didn't have long hair in a bit. It was a lot of the early Bitcoin folks in New York. We all got together at a barbecue, which was quite fun, but I think there was one or two ankle bracelets at that.
0: We had Charlie Shrem there. We had we was a, uh, you know. Wait, so this was like Silk Road crowd? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you declined his request to, to trade Bitcoin at Morgan Stanley? Because the people you hung out with? they were definitely uh, earlier times Anarchist. of Bitcoin.
3: Anarchist times, yeah, right? definitely. People who are extremely ideological and folks who are really excited about the technology.
0: Well, let's talk about the idea, because you said the interesting time, you know, the Bitcoin white paper was what written in 09 and the aftermath of the financial crisis. And was that something that you identified with as a young 20 something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
3: I think for me, it was just something completely different. And I hadn't been formed in the same backdrop that Stuart had. When I met him, he'd been on Wall Street since 99. So 16 years of seeing everything from the euro really becoming something that was traded to digital trading Financial crisis, all this other stuff. So I didn't have that context, but it felt fundamentally different because I would look at something like BitTorrent. Oh, hey, I can download movies and download it from other people. And what if that was money? It just kind of stuck with me. And there was a lot of people around me who were excited about it, too. So coming out of school, I was like, well, I want to do Bitcoin for my career. And in 2012, when I was making the decision, and this is when I met Stuart and I was interning at Morgan Stanley, there wasn't really a lot of things you could do in terms of becoming a Bitcoin professional. Coinbase, I think, had already started, but very early stage, there wasn't a lot of opportunities. And the folks that I knew who were working in Bitcoin weren't super successful yet (laughs) and had lots of challenges with what they were doing. But to me, it was like, okay, well, if I want to be in a place where digital currencies are trading, I should go where currencies are trading. And that's
0: what put me directly into joining the foreign exchange desk. So Packy, you just mentioned that you bought your first Bitcoin back after reading ABC Fred Wilson's blog about their investment in Coinbase, and I'm assuming that's around the same time that Trevor's talking about right now.
2: That was probably about a year after Trevor's talking about right now. I was at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, was getting ready to leave. I didn't like the trading restrictions that were placed on the account, and I knew that they had no idea what Coinbase was. And so I bought, over the course of a month, 38 Bitcoin. And then I quit my job and decided to join a startup. I had some time in between, went to Oktoberfest, and I felt bad about going out at Oktoberfest and spending all that money with my friends who were still in finance. And so I woke up in a Munich hotel room, hungover and feeling bad about myself, and started offloading Bitcoin to pay for the trip, the $2 million trip to Oktoberfest. Classic. Oi, are you the guy who bought the pizza with 10,000 Bitcoin too, or no? That thankfully was not me. And there's photographic evidence of the guy who who that was. Look up Bitcoin pizza. I have a $43,000 chair from overstock.com.
4: If
0: that makes you feel any better. (laughs) You can buy the same chair for $100. (laughs) What was that like, though, back then? I mean, talking about Coinbase, I think the first time I ever downloaded the app was in 2017 in that retail frenzy, if you will. But you're sitting in Munich. Was there an app? Was it on your iPhone 4S? What was going on back then with Coinbase? That's actually a really good question. I think it was... It was web-based back
2: then, right? I think it was web-based at that point. I was on my computer doing it. When I went to... Breather, a company that I worked for afterwards that ended up failing, I really tried to convince them to start accepting Bitcoin as payment, which the company would still be alive and kicking and doing
0: very, very, very well had that happened as opposed to going under. That's a good segue. I was just somewhere and I just saw a decrepit sticker on a storefront that said, use Bitcoin here. It had to be eight years old or something that that. Stuart, you and I talked about this as like Trevor got you in and you started thinking about it. You started thinking in the broader context of the instruments that you guys were trading and how it fit into global finance. But at some point you said, I'm leaving. We're gonna go. You guys tried to create a couple different startups before you arrived at what the business model was for current. Was payment a big part of it? Because I've said this on many occasions. I think Bitcoin has a PR problem. It's called a cryptocurrency, but yet people don't use it as a currency. They use it as a store of value. Now, a lot of people right now are saying, well, it hasn't been a great store of value. We're going to get to that in our macro portion of OK Computer. We have inflation readings at the highest levels they've been in 40 years. And we have Bitcoin. It's essentially cut in half almost at its lows just a couple of weeks ago. So how did it become a real focal point for the business that ended up being current?
4: I think Bitcoin in the early days when we were looking at it, it could be anything. So it was still in this Morpheus stage. In fact, cryptocurrencies go through various stages, in my view, of different attributes. They're almost quantum. Sometimes they're securities and then they turn into a commodity and then they're a currency. And that really stuffs up the regulatory background because no one knows how to do it. They're pretty complicated. And so in their life cycle, they do different things. And I think Bitcoin, when we first looked at it, still have potential because it was cheap enough to be a payment system. Now, I think we're all agreed it's digital gold, like it's an asset. It's only digital gold. It's a store of wealth. Even with the Lightning Network, I think when you have assets that you think are going to appreciate, why are you going to use it as a payment? I don't know. So I think also, by the way, the incumbent system with Visa, MasterCard and all these, there's a 1% to 3% tax for merchants, for fraud and all this other stuff. Whenever you look at history and the cost of moving money, 1 to 3%. Now, cryptocurrencies are putting the risk and everything out of the network. And so, who's picking up that tab? And obviously, lower barriers to entry for innovation and things like that. And so, that's worth something, but it works. And so, I think there's a time and a place for everything.
3: And for us in the early days, we were actually looking at and working with Ripple, which we weren't even taking the stance of, hey, we got to do something on top of Bitcoin or this asset that moves. Ripple was one of the first. Now it's colloquially the stablecoin, which is basically an extension of credit from an entity through trust lines. And so we were thinking about it in terms of payments and balance storage, but away from you need to hold Bitcoin and that value is going to change. Because also in 2015, when we officially incorporated, we were in a bear market. It was not a sexy time to be in crypto. It wasn't until 2017 that it became fun and exciting for most people. So that had a big impact. I think dollar stable
4: coins... At banks is the most exciting thing right now. Why aren't we trying to get that legislation through? We've already got regulation. When you go back to Fiat, we've already got the infrastructure. It's already been built up. It's already pretty good. It's been battle tested two thousand and eight. <laughs> we know it works now. We've got digital dollars, but they're incumbent Board garden to America. I'm sorry, I'm going macro, but we do have a euro dollar market. We're exporting dollars. That's what America does. And so wouldn't this be the best way to export those dollars is to have stable coins based at banks that now freely fungible into the US
2: system, but can be traded and programmable internationally. Isn't that obvious or no? Hard time picturing Bank of America, my former employer, doing that. How are you thinking about incorporating bank based stable coins at current... To your earlier story, when I was still at Morgan Stanley, I sent myself
3: a public wallet address and I think 10 million red flags went up. But the way that we're approaching it from the beginning, products and the prototypes we were building was what is banking without banks? How do we exist in a world that doesn't rely on the relationships that are required to operate financial services in the US? And I think while there's obviously a place for regulation, super important, there's still this idea of what is a different type of financial backend. And for us, it's as these new financial backends become available, which is programmable money that can be changed and put through different experiences, how can we make that seamlessly integrated with the product that we have today, which is very much linked with our sponsor banks and with other financial partners? For us, it's really about weaving in these opportunities in a cohesive way to customers. We can't and don't want to do just a hard cut. There's no banks. Fuck the government. That's not the right way to do any of this stuff. It's really about, as a user... How do I get access to these things? It needs to be where I get my paycheck, my paycheck and payroll provider. They're coming into a bank. They're using ACH. They're part of the network. And for us, it's like, okay, well, how can we bring that into convert that to a stable coin, which can then go and earn yield or do other
2: things that are now available in these open networks? Two part question here, which is one, what are the things that you think you can do with crypto that you couldn't otherwise do? And the second is, how much do you show the user the crypto and how much do you just abstract all of that away?
3: Yeah, I think the money market account of something like Compound. Compound is really a protocol that opens up the concept of getting a loan from a bank. And there's a lot of these protocols out there now. Aave has a big one. There's exciting stuff happening in the polka dot space around these types of protocols. But it's really, if a bank's purpose is within the loan and consumer context to make loans and set that underwriting criteria and make all of those decisions, but then also pay depositors for those deposits and control that whole thing, it's just the central stack that you can't really get in the middle of. And what these protocols offer is the opportunity to actually split that open and be a part of the actual means of production for this financial product, which is you can provide collateral into this contract, and you can also leverage that collateral to borrow at fair rates that are set by the actual structure of the protocol, which is something that has never existed before. It's always been guarded by centralized decision making. And as a result, there's been people who have not been able to access credit, people who have not been able to access higher returns. These are things that are really only available to the upper, upper echelon of people who have a lot of money. And this is really where we think the big opportunity
0: is. Stuart, you and I talked about a little bit of your product roadmap, the stuff that your customer will see. And so you guys just introduced a high yield account, which you're offering, I think, up to 4% or something like that, which is unheard of. We might see that going up the way interest rates are moving. We're going to talk about that a little bit. What the customers not seeing is your ability to use DeFi to offer that sort of service. And are you seeing customers who get that? They're getting this newfound financial landscape and they're coming to you because of your ability to leverage some of this new technology.
4: Absolutely. So I think people want value. We've got a few issues in the world, and specifically in the country. Inflation, reported inflation and real inflation, hands up who covered their bases and got more than 8% on their savings last year. Because if you didn't, you lost purchasing power, probably lost 7%, whatever it is. And so you had $1,000 now, $930 purchasing power. So that's the majority of Americans right now. For our existing demographic that we've focused on up until this point, access to their money as quickly as possible, access to funds and liquidity and things like that. And so what you're seeing is this new infrastructure, this new network that's outside the incumbent system enables us to start getting ahead of the existing system. And so it has its own problems maybe further down the line, but at least at this stage, it is enabling us to provide value to people to not just even get ahead, but to stay still. And I think that's really, really important because at the moment, the government's spending all our money on a whole bunch of things. And I know we vote them in and all that stuff, all that boring stuff, but we're paying for it right now, right? So that $7 trillion, we're paying for it right now, no matter what they say about Ukraine and all the rest of it. If you weren't really cool with that, is there a way that you could stand still? And so crypto or some of these networks that Trevor's just gone over enables us to plug in consumers in a seamless way and almost a default way so they don't have to think it's all curated and all the rest of it to then combat some of the headwinds about getting ahead in the U.S. banking system. So that's what we're trying to do here because we do think that wealth inequality has been driven primarily from... A sort of broken system that we're pouring more gasoline on and dividing the country more and more. So how do we
0: help now a third of America? It used to be like a quarter. <laughs> and if we have a recession, it'll be half. So your point is, is that each recession that we've had over the last, let's call it 20 years, the Fed action of lowering interest rates, dreaming up things like quantitative easing. But really that divide between asset holders. And so when you lower interest rates and you do the QE and you see asset inflation, that's what we're really talking about. And then you're also talking about large swaths of our country who are just unbanked. The funny thing is, though, and there's nothing really funny about it. It took a black swan event like the pandemic and doubling the size of the Fed's balance sheet to really make it very clear. And then all of a sudden, listen, I was definitely in the camp and you and I've talked about this, where I thought the Fed was probably going to be right about transitory effects. They just threw trillions of monetary and fiscal stimulus at a black swan event, which was the pandemic, a global pandemic. And what did they do? They avoided a credit crisis like that we saw in the financial crisis. To me, That made sense. The fact that they were still buying $120 billion worth of treasuries and MBS a year after we had the vaccines was insane. Now, you could say that was just the fuel to the fire. The war is not helping here in Europe. I still believe it's going to be transitory. I still believe we're going to see CPI cut in half. I'm just curious, though, because the mission of Current is to improve the financial outcomes of your nearly 4 million customers right now. What is this meant for you guys as far as your product roadmap using some of the technology that you've been implementing in the background? Can you accelerate some of that activity? Because there's going to be some scar tissue on this economy. There's no doubt about it. And the people that you guys are serving obviously have the benefit of gravitating towards services like yours that will unlock DeFi and some of these other protocols.
3: Even if CPI comes in and a lot of the day-to-day factors revert a bit for our users, the damage is done in the sense of the people who have had assets have experienced asset inflation and the people who don't have assets still don't have assets. And so one of the things that we're trying to do with this opening up that's happening with these protocols is how do we get our customers ownership of these means of production, which is really something that we could be thinking about. Would a bank give their own stock To their customers, that hasn't happened yet. Maybe they should think about doing something like that. But these protocols are built in, as you use them, you gain ownership. And so there's some pretty interesting ways that we can start making our customers owners of this system, so that as the system becomes the prominent system, they've got the leg up in terms of combating that great divide that can't really be closed without getting ownership into the people's hands.
2: How do you think about this from a regulatory perspective? Obviously, BlockFi just got in a whole lot of trouble offering yields to people. I think they are paying the fine to set the terms in the industry. Are you registering, or how are you offering yield to people in a compliant way? Well, I think
3: it's very clear that, of course, in retrospect, but what BlockFi did was very much unregistered security, where they were effectively paying for the deposit very directly, where they were the direct counterparty. I think. Philosophically, we want to get our customers to face protocols and not be in the center of that. So there's sort of a structural change that will take some time working with regulators to provide clarity about why this is self-directed, why this is not that counterparty where we're not representing a promise for a return or anything that would meet those criteria. It's really important how we plot this course because we're really one of the first ones doing this. There's also a world where the self-directed
4: DeFi route isn't palatable for the broad-based consumer. And so there's a world where BlockFi has blazed the trail. So we know it's the securities, broker-dealer licenses, and registering is the thing that we should do. So we're looking at all options for all
2: different product combinations at this point. That makes a lot of sense. But to your point, when you plug in directly to the protocol then maybe they can get governance tokens and they can get ownership. Part of it is that stuff happens automatically and these tokens show up in people's account. The other challenge is the communication. How are you thinking about letting people know what they own and what's happening and all those types of things? It feels like a huge challenge. Yeah, it's one of our product principles for this stuff. True, you're probably
4: better place, but education is the wrong word. We're trying to find the right word, if anyone can think of it. It's not education,
3: it's something else. Yeah, it's definitely the communication. I mean... To answer directly, this is our business, communicating directly to customers to make hard things more simple. Even our existing product of maybe not to the listeners of this podcast and not to us, but it is difficult to understand how a savings rate works. What does 4% interest really mean? And we have many customers who thought that we were charging them that just because of their past experiences. So we think about communication of financial problems, which are really math problems, a lot. And the communication for this is, it's really what Stuart's saying, which is, it's an educational component, but it's really show by actually doing, which is instead of just telling someone about, for example, this is a compound token and you get this with that, it's like, here it is, you own it now. And people will get more interested in it as they start to have a stake in the ownership. So we think a lot about it. There's no easy answer. I just liked what
4: Trevor's saying, like we deal in math, no one likes math. Apart from Trevor, he's a CS math major, but like that's our business is math and math is boring and complicated and other people and computers should do it. And so all the great companies, all the great experiences just turn that math into easy to understand things.
2: Over time, your customers will build up a big stash of compound tokens or whatever other tokens. How do you think about getting them involved in governance? Are they delegating to you? Will people be voting on things like how involved can you get them? I think it's really interesting thinking about getting people just deeply involved in the ecosystem passively. I've got a very high-level opinion on this,
4: which is we already got precedence for this in stock ownership and voting, and people buy those voting rights, and there's this whole economy and whole companies, actually, around governance. Not everyone's interested. I think making sure that people understand what that means, there'll be different prices for governance versus others and all the rest of it. And so I guess my TLDR is is there is precedence. Like everything in the world, you get a Pareto 80-20, so the 20% are interested, the 80% are not and then you get the, I think it's the power rule, 1% really doing it. When did this turn into Sahil Bloom's Twitter feed? <laughs> I've been reading
3: too much Twitter. Okay. I just want to be really
0: careful because I get confused with all the razors and the rules. Hey, Trevor, how are you not on Twitter? It's
2: toxic. I just stay away from it. He's on whole, no social media. Zero. Zero. Yeah, he's one of those guys. I'm healthier for it. Can you describe what it feels like inside of your brain? It's great. I
3: wake up, I think about, you know, what I'm going to eat for breakfast, go to work. I just listen to a podcast.
2: And you don't tweet about the podcast. You just listen to it and think about it. I don't think about my reaction. I just
0: react. I'm with three young men here who all have babies of two years and younger right now. You guys don't have time for social. Let's just be frank here. I've gotten to know your product a little bit. And it's interesting listening to the origin story back in 15 and some of the different iterations. And when I look at it, it really does feel like a lot of crypto wallets. Was that by design? Because for instance, Coinbase just what, two years ago launched the digital wallet? There's obviously some others in an app-based manner. But when you look at Current and you look at the app, and I know you guys are not a bank, it really does feel like a digital first experience for maybe these customers who are coming into the financial world through NFTs or through some of these products. It really does have that look and feel to it. It's down to the data primitive. The way that we actually built it was built
3: around crypto wallets. That was the primitive of how everything else was then structured. And one of the areas that we are pretty differentiated, and Stu probably has chatted about this before, but we built a core banking engine with the assumption of we may not be on top of a bank. We may be on top of a protocol. We may be on top of anything else. And so we fundamentally approach the way that our consumer experience is delivered through this mindset of it doesn't really matter where the balance is stored. But we're going to create an experience around that balance that is cohesive
0: and easy to understand. Do people get that? When you guys are out telling the story, that core banking engine that is built on a different rail, it's on a new rail, all the incumbents have been doing the same thing, just patching holes in this and that or whatever, right? You guys are building that from scratch. Our existing investors understand it implicitly. Some of our competitors too, which is good. Starting to take notice.
4: Yeah, I think so just because they've got their own problems. So, yeah, I remember those conversations, Trevor. He's being really kind. But the user experience is like an iceberg. It's like the very last thing, the design and how it all works. The UX and UI is very, very important, like number two reason why people get a neobank thing. But that is built on the architecture of how everything works, how the data and the schemas are sewed together. And those conversations were brutal. It was like weeks on end, four or five years ago, talking about a future we didn't even know was going to happen, arguing at length about things that potentially would be tough in five or 10
3: years time. And so there were hard times. But luckily, I think we've made some good decisions. Yeah, we really took a leap of faith on, hey, if we build this right, the ceiling on what we can actually deliver is uncapped. We don't have to rely on a third party to integrate us within their roadmap that they're then selling to other clients, which is sort of the standard that exists for most financial technologies.
0: It cost us in terms of that was a big decision to make early on. When you look at the public markets right now and you look at some of the fintechy, the flashy things that were trading at 40, 50 times sales in public markets that are now down 60, 70, 80 percent from those highs, they were doing an ass backwards. They were keying in on some of these, I guess, some of the mantra of being able to offer these to the unbanked or services, but they built it on the old rails and it didn't really make it that much differentiated from some of the larger incumbents in a way. So that I find kind of interesting.
4: You know, this Web 1, 2, and
0: 3 demarcation. I've been mean, going around Twitter. If you read Twitter.
4: Well, Trevor doesn't. Trevor doesn't. know. I'll explain it. So we're in these three distinct buckets of the internet. And I think it was Dixon or something like that that came up. But anyway, someone did. Probably Andreessen. Why Web 3
0: matters? Why Web 3 matters? Andreessen great at marketing, right? So that's probably them. Just you know, Packy's an advisor to A16Z Crypto Fund. And you work a lot with Chris Dixon. He was actually in The Economist with Chris. They did one of their little, what do they call those? The Beeple pictures? Or what do they call that? I don't know. They added,
2: I think, 15 years to my appearance in that picture they did there. I also was in the New York Times
0: over the weekend. What? Yeah, if you missed crypto, here's
2: the definition.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, fair enough. Packy, when you hear these guys talk about what they're building and where are the origins of it, and you've done these amazing deep dives on Web3, and I've learned so much from just reading that Boring over the last year or so, how do you see a product like this? And you've seen a lot of these digital wallets or these crypto wallets that are meant to do other things. Do you see a world where this is all in one place? I
2: think there's a certain group of people for whom they want to do everything direct to the protocol and they want to get their hands dirty. And I think that's the group of people who's been early in Web3. I would imagine that the people on this call are some of those types of people who want to get in and do everything themselves and figure out how to yield farm between different protocols and all of that kind of stuff. And then there's some people who just want the benefits. One of my beliefs that maybe makes me less popular on crypto Twitter is that I think the people who care the most about getting directly involved with everything and the most about pure decentralization and the most about all that are already in the space. And like the next billion users that everybody talks about are going to need easier, smoother interfaces where you can still get the benefits. That's one of the things I really like about this approach is that it's ideally both easy, but also actually gets you the ownership of the governance token potentially and gets you the yields and gets you all these things. And then from there, the challenge is if you want to walk deeper into it, what are the next ramps deeper into crypto? But I love this approach. And I actually think that kind of more consumer friendly on ramps are going to be one of the biggest things in the next five or so years. We totally agree. We're in the AOL version, you know, the
4: AOL time period of Web3. And it's getting more complicated as the web progresses. Cryptocurrency is really hard, math stuff. And so people need a longer period of time to be onboarded and they need things to be simplified. And I think the majority of people do just want the value. (laughs) I think that's what they want. Until of course the government turns against them and then there's an anarchistic thing and you need your Bitcoin, you need to flee the country or wherever you live. So apart from that, edge case, you just want the value. So I think we're in this era of this AOL almost walled garden. The problem with AOL was they didn't understand that they were temporary. Great company, but they didn't understand.
0: My partner, Guy Dami, still has his AOL tile up. There you go. No, he does. But that's a really interesting point because there seems like there's definitely crypto holy wars. Who owns Web3? All that sort of stuff. Packy and I were just talking about that. But when I look at a guy like Jack Dorsey, who is this Bitcoin maximalist, but he also is the creator of two of the biggest centralized platforms, one in finance and, and one in social media over the last 15 years or 10 years or something like that. But Trevor, you have no issue, like for you, the whole idea of decentralization as the holy grail, that's not a thing for you. It's about what you can do with the technology. A SQL database,
3: you don't laud, oh my God, this is the only way that you can store data. It is the truth. It's like, well, no, how do you make a great consumer experience? I answer a lot of these questions, which is, you know, we've announced partnerships with Polkadot, with Acala, and people are like, oh, well, why did you choose Polkadot? Why did you choose? Like it's this binding contract that we've made. And yeah, we're co-building products together, but there's lots of exciting stuff that's happening everywhere. And to me, taking a really hard stance on the technology misses the point that, you've got so many exciting ideas that need to be fleshed out and we can be part of delivering those ideas to consumers that it's just about the value.
0: That's really all people care about. All right. Well, listen, this was amazing. We had the two of you here to talk about the origin story of Current and what the roadmap is. But we got to switch gears here a little bit because this guy that I'm sitting across from who is on Twitter, Stuart Sopp, you are a prolific tweeter about the economy, about some of the things that you believe in that obviously is the reason why you started Current, about income inequality and the causes of that sort of thing. Let's talk about what's going on right now because this is actually really important, I think, for your customer who's kind of new to the financial world. And there's a lot of things. Again, you said, math is complicated. Economics are even more complicated if you think about it because you need to understand math a little bit. What's going on right now, I'm nearly 50 years old. I've been in the markets for 25 years, and I have never seen overshoot of such an important economic tenant like we've seen inflation. Now, if I was in the business for 50 years, I'd be able to tell you, oh, back in the early 70s or late 70s. But then we saw this move towards globalization. We saw so many factors that have been a huge I think, factor for good as it relates to the global economy, but things have gone haywire right now. So how is 4 to $5 gas at the pump? Obviously, wages are going up, and I think that's probably good for your customer base, but versus inflation, it maybe doesn't mean anything. So talk to us a little bit about the environment and what are some of the things you're seeing and some of the things that you're hearing from your customers?
4: Yeah, so inflation is the, the rigor word of 2021 and into 22. And of course, we already mentioned the supply shock That continues, right? And so $100 oil is weirdly persistent. And if we do turn off right Russia or Europe does that, you can read the reports again on Twitter. $170 to $250 is the new, that's where it gets tight. And so $4 to $6, depending on where you live in America, people, especially our current users, our existing demographic, they have a fixed cost of living, meaning they don't have much discretionary. And so groceries, like we've seen wheat double or triple in price, whatever it was, most recently, because Ukraine's at this big breadbasket of the world. Fertilizer along with the natural gas prices. Fertilizer plants now can't run efficiently, so they closed them down in the UK and Europe. And so now fertilizer, mainly from Russia, has now been stopped because of sanctions. So I think for this year, maybe into next year, yields in terms of food are going to be fine because they've already made their purchases. But going forward, you mentioned earlier, we're going to see a deceleration in inflation and an easing off. You're right, rate of change is going to come off. But we're going to have a persistently high inflation above Fed target for years. That's not all their fault. It's governments and war and all this other stuff, right? There's the sanctions, and that's okay. But their reaction to it, I think, is what's really throwing the wrench. What you're really getting at is the Fed are not like the 1970s because we don't have women coming into the workforce and having all the surplus supply of workers and all this other stuff. We're having deglobalization. It looks like 1940s, post-World War II. It looks like that. And so what the Fed can do is very little, which is they're going to have to inflate the debt away. And so their policy response, in my view, is just going to be lagging. So we want seven, eight hikes. They're going to give us three or four. And so every time we price pricing 50, it comes back down the night before. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> they're only going to do 25, really. And so what they're going to do is they're going to act devilishly and talk hawkishly. And we saw that at the last board meeting, and they're going to keep doing it. It's going to keep annoying every single person in this country who's trading.
0: I guess part of that discussion is, you know, you said... If deglobalization is really a thing, and then we see onshoring of and manufacturing, you're going to see the biggest economic shift the globe's seen in 50 or 60 years. I just don't think that's going to happen. For instance, in America, I don't think people want to do those jobs in general, and this kind of goes but back. But it may change with how much money they're earning. Like you
4: said, wage growth isn't keeping up with inflation. If you have that for a couple of years and your standard of living goes down, do you want to get a higher-paying job? Maybe some of these jobs are higher-paying when they onshore.
0: Yeah, I guess the point that I would just make is that in the lead up to the pandemic, the biggest fear was deflation, deflationary forces. We're talking about UBI. I mean, all these sorts of things. So I just don't believe that you can have this black swan event and the total course of the globe's economic future just changes like that. And I do think that you guys see it in what you guys are creating. And technology is this massively deflationary force. And I just think we're going to get back to it. And I think that this geopolitical situation that we're in with Ukraine, it could be China and Taiwan in three months or something like that. This might be a very volatile period, but I think ultimately we go back to some of that stuff. The other issue is, to your point, do you inflate that debt away? They just threw four four and a half trillion dollars at this pandemic, and at some point, people have been yelling and screaming on the floor. You know that guy Santelli yells and screams. He's the one who started the Tea Party thing on the floor of the CME, yelling about runaway inflation. Well, it never happened, okay? So we yeah, we saw it in healthcare costs. We've seen it in education, but everything else because of all of our favorite MAGA companies. I call MAGA Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. They've been going the opposite way, and they're going to get back to doing that. The technology forces are absolutely like we're a big part of that. But there is a reality
3: to what people can actually afford. And right now, they're just not able to. OK,
0: what about this? That consumer balance sheets and corporates, for that matter, have never been in better shape, if you think about it, because of that monetary and fiscal stimulus. And you're going to tell me you have data from your customers. Exactly. I'm wrong. Yeah, you can, you can come on my podcast and tell me I'm wrong. I mean, why don't you? Well, actually, you guys are the fine presenting sponsor. (laughs) You can say whatever the hell you want.
4: Dan, you sound like the Fed. I came on here last time. I said, the problem is the Fed works on averages and means and all this other stuff, right? And so when you bifurcate the country with all these policies, it's just really different. And so those consumer balance sheets are eaten up by inflation. So inflation is meaningful in autos. It's meaningful like secondhand cars, right? Like You don't buy a new car if you're living paycheck to paycheck. You're trying to find a secondhand car and get some kind of credit situation going on. And food has gone up meaningfully. Oil, gas has gone up meaningfully. And we're talking about tens of millions of people that $50 means something. Yeah. And now we've got inflation. If you look at the basket and then you, if you take in housing as well, hundreds of dollars even more with the mortgage rates because everyone's on variable and it's going to keep going. And so for the next two or three months, maybe in the next quarter, I think I was on the podcast last time, I said, look, it's going to go down a lot. And then into Q2, we we'd rally, just saying, started to rally. Yeah. We are starting to see that relief rally Inflation, I think, will be persistent and for the second half may create some form of recession because that consumer demand. Well, side. Wait,
0: wait, let's be really clear. I mean, the Fed's intent right now to curb inflation by raising rates and Fed Chair Powell just came out. This is less than a week of their first rate hike in three years and said that 50 basis points may be on the table. Talk cautiously act of Don't forget, they got it up over 2%. We saw the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield above 3% very briefly in late 2018. And to your point, what happened? The stock market went down 20% in a straight line. The thing that's really fucked up to me right now is the S&P 500 at its lows about a week and a half ago was only down 15%. And when you consider what's going on in the macro environment, the geopolitical environment, where the Fed's balance sheet is, that makes no sense. So you might have had this little bounce. It is not done, people. And one thing that I think a lot of people forget, and this is me putting my fast money hat on here, is that in the wake of the dot-com bust, we had more than two-year bear market in stocks. And then other risk assets got absolutely destroyed. And then we saw what happened. We saw the housing market inflate. And then the stock market came back after that. And after the financial crisis, we had 08 and early 09. The market topped out, people forget, in late 2007. So protracted bear markets, what the Fed is orchestrated here is shorter recessions, and I know by definition two consecutive. But my point is the effect on risk assets. What they're doing is managing the risk asset downside. And to your guys' point, we further exasperate that income inequality every time we do it. And maybe this is the time where the chickens come home to roost, and that would be a very sad thing because if we are worried about a pre-pandemic and pre-war in Europe, it's only worse now, especially where you see sovereign debt levels because to your point they really can't raise interest rates too far yeah
4: you're right with the deflation also really demographics let's just be honest inflation ultimately is just demographics and america specifically doesn't have great demographics it's okay compared to europe and china but not great and so like are you just going to see the end game is
0: stagflation is that the end game whereby they can create inflation but growth is just zero People forget in the 10 years prior to the pandemic, you know what U.S. GDP was averaging? 2.2%. Think about that. And they were dying to get inflation above 2%. Well, the internet
4: just came out. That productivity gain was insane, wasn't
0: it? I know. But I guess my point is, is I really think, let's just say, and we all hope that there's a massive de-escalation of the situation in Ukraine, okay? And let's say nothing really happens with China and Taiwan. And based on what's happened to the global economy, China may not be able to afford to do something like that would put them in a very similar situation as far as all the sanctions and the bans and all that sort of stuff of of what they produce over there. Then I think we'll see things come back. Remember, Paki, we're supposed to have the roaring 20s. I'm most excited just listening
2: to this conversation, and this is a lot of people are smarter on the macro and the markets than I am, but I'm really excited too about, I think, adams based tech innovation over the next few years. feels like that's becoming sexy again, and I think that will help with auto costs, with a bunch of these different things when you can bring automation in and make those jobs sexy. Writing about a company, spoiler alert, in a couple weeks that I think is doing some really cool stuff here. I'm excited to see what humanity does on the Atoms side
0: of things over the next decade and When people ask me when I'm on Fast Money, where are you investing in innovation? Because everyone's selling Arc. I actually think the most innovative things, let's see what Ford does, how they go from ICE to a fully EV fleet. You may see amazing innovation in companies that have existed for 100 years, and there may be value left all over the stock market floor. And it's not the crap that's in Arc.
4: Not investment advice, but Ford splitting the EV and the engine companies out, really smart, in my view. And that was going back to an early point I forgot to finish when a company grows up in one of those distinct buckets, like Ford was in the era of automation and combustion engine, it's really hard to cross those buckets. And you've seen it with Facebook into Meta and Square to Block. And what they're really saying is, we are a Web2 company or we're this era company and we have all this cultural alignment. The way we do things is just this certain way and we've been very successful. But we've recognized that there is a seismic shift and we will be deeply unsuccessful. And they're trying to innovate themselves. They're trying to disrupt themselves, which takes a very brave leadership. Now, what we were doing Early days was we don't want to do that just yet because we're not a big enough company. We were trying to disrupt ourselves from the early days trying to get us Web3 access from 2015-2016. So we wouldn't have to do that mid-stride as we were growing and providing this value. Now, companies that are going to be successful, and the cycles are getting much, much shorter. We're talking web two to web three is pretty short given the scale of things. For Ford, it's hundred plus years. Good for them. That, to me, makes sense. I don't know anything. Not investment advice, but it looks like when you take that kind of leadership approach and you take that kind of risk, normally works out okay.
0: That's really interesting. So Not Boring Fun 2 Packy is going to be focused on Web4, and it's launching in three months now, so... Trevor, let's end on this, because I find it fascinating how you guys went out to build this company. And when you think about innovation, I think that we could all agree that places that we've all worked, some of the largest banks on the planet, they're probably some of the least innovative. And so I look at the potential for disruption of some of these global incumbents like that's going to be a massive opportunity. Is that what you guys kind of set out to do? I don't think directly. I think what we set out to do
3: is observing the way that payments were changing, the way that money was changing. We just wanted to be on that wave. We see this thing cresting over the horizon. It's like, well, that looks fun. How do we be part of that? And how do we deliver that to people? It's not really like, how do we go and fuck everyone else up? Let's fuck everybody else up anyway, though. We're doing that, too.
0: (laughs) It's a big wave. It's the wave. It's not us. Hey, Packy, I was on Josh Brown and Batnick's podcast a couple weeks ago in the compound. And every time we said fuck, they're like, all right, bleep that. I'm like, dude, why are you guys? It seems so inauthentic. They're like, oh, the algorithms don't like it. And I'm like, come on, man, is that where we are right now? (laughs) Fuck the algorithms. Yeah, fuck them. Next one we're going to do over Comos Tequila. We're going to get this group together in person. Maybe we'll have Joe Marchese join Truly my pleasure to have Stuart Stopp and Trevor Marshall. I guess it's the first time you guys have ever done an interview, and we did it with Packy, my main man, from Not Boring Here. So thank you guys for joining us. Thank you guys for your support of OK Computer, and let's do it again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.